Good evening. Yes, it is. And by the way, those of you who weren't at our last public evening, notice the clock does work now. It's, it's exactly the right time. So a welcome to Stewart Observatory. And we welcome those of you listening to this lecture uh, on the World Wide Web via iTunes U. Uh, before I introduce the introdu introduction to tonight's speaker, I would like to remind any students that are in the audience for some sort of class assignment, I'm the person that will stamp your assignment. And it will be done at the conclusion of the question and answer period. Up those tables, I'll be standing up in that corner of the building, and that's where you can find me. Also, at the conclusion of tonight's lecture, I, I know there'll be a reception, but at the same time, the Raymond E. White Jr. Telescope will be open for public viewing. It's a 21-inch telescope. It's the white building with a big white dome on top. And it'll be open until 10 o'clock for your viewing pleasure. I would now like to introduce Professor Edward Olszewski from Stewart Observatory to introduce tonight's speaker. Good evening, everyone. It's my pleasure. I've been doing this mostly on for quite a number of years now um, to welcome you to the 16th Mark Aronson Memorial Lectureship. The reason I get to do this a lot was that I came to the University of Arizona in 1984 on a National Science Foundation grant with Mark Aronson to be his postdoc, and I never left. <laughs> and the person on the left in that picture is Mark Aronson at the age of 26, standing at what's fondly called the monastery of the Palomar 200-inch. They had a tradition of taking pictures of observers at the monastery. Um, Mark was an up-and-coming at that time, 26-year-old, famous young infrared astronomer. And his two real thesis advisors, um, the guy who signed his dissertation was not one of those two guys, but those are the two guys who helped him through his work with infrared astronomy and with a brand new infrared photometer. Jay Frogel's in the middle and Eric Persons on the right and they're both very famous infrared astronomers now. So this was quite a young, amazing trio of people. And that was at the age of 26 for Mark. So what we try to do with the Aronson lectures, which are endowed by the large number of people who sorely missed Mark after he died in 1987, we try to bring enthusiasm to Tucson for only a couple of days. Mark was a wildly enthusiastic man, and the amount of energy he gave to Stewart Observatory by being in our building is hard to replace. And we can fake it for a couple of days every year, every year and a half, to bring in by bringing in someone who is like, we, we'd like to think has something to do with what Mark was like. Young, enthusiastic, passionate, and the Mark Aronson Award is given to somebody who for a decade-long body of research in, in observational astronomy has broadened our understanding of the universe. So there are two things kind of at play against each other here. One is young astronomer, you have to actually be within 15 years of your PhD, and the other is has done a decade's worth of work in order to broaden our understanding of the universe. And that's why we're going to recognize Dr. Peter Van Dockum tonight, and I'm going to give you just a two-sentence bio of Peter Van Dockum, and then I'm going to ask Mark Aronson's daughter, Jamie Aronson, to come up and say a few words and present the Aronson Award to him. 
Peter van Dockum got his PhD in the Netherlands at Groningen in 1999. He received a Hubble Fellowship and took it to Caltech, where he spent three years on his Hubble and then one year on a, the inaugural Spitzer Fellowship, named after another space telescope. He then became a professor at Yale University, and where he's been ever since, and is now the chairman of the department. He is the proud possessor of a couple of very big projects with Hubble Space Telescope that have used a couple of hundred orbits. We measure our lives with HST by orbits, and 200 is a big one. And he also is the proud possessor of a couple of very large NOAO, National Observatory, survey programs um, using many tens of nights on the Kitt Peak 4 meter. Um, so, Jamie, would you like to come up? Hi, thank you all for coming. I'm Jamie, uh, Mark's younger daughter. My sister, Laura, is down in LA and could not be here today. Uh, my mom is also here, Marianne, in the audience. And thank you all so much for coming. I wanted to thank you for being here, thank the friends from Tucson and LA and San Francisco who have traveled to be here, um, Ed and the committee um, and my mom for planning this. Um, this year is the 25th anniversary um, since my dad's passing, so it's a special year for us and a really great way for me to connect with his memory and his legacy and reconnect with his colleagues um, and be inspired by having a meal and, and getting to know the recipient each year. Um, so I thought I would just tell one or two quick little anecdotes before presenting the award. Um, the first being, so, so I was five in 1987 when he died, so quite little. Um, and as I've gotten older, I'm 31 now, uh, I think I've gotten more and more in touch with sort of my personal passions. And I like to think that a lot of those we would have shared in common um, from uh, music to humor to intellect to, of course, research and discovery. Um, and so one little story around that. Um, I'm finishing my MBA at Berkeley uh, up in the San Francisco area. And for my last class, I'm taking pricing, um, which I'm sure sounds thrilling to everyone. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I sent a note to a good friend, and I said, I'm so excited for this class. An incredible professor is coming back to the university to teach it and I'm going to reprice the whole world and make it right. <laughs> so a, a little bit of a grandiose statement, but um, I think most people in the class are thinking about pricing one product, and I think you know, at the macro level and, um, and you know, in terms of systems and in terms of what is, is possible, and I think I inherited that all from my father because I can't imagine anything bigger than thinking about the age and the size of the universe. So I'm, I'm proud of that inheritance. And I'm very proud um, to also award Dr. Peter Van Dockum with the Aronson, the 2012 Aronson Lecture Award um, for his studies leading to an understanding of the evolution of the most massive galaxies over cosmic time. So it's tiny mundane subject matter, I'm sure. <laughs> so congratulations, award. <laughs> hey, thank you. Thank you. A little, a little help for college for the kids. <laughs> yeah, uh, thank, thank you very much uh, for that, that lovely introduction. 
And um, also thanks, um, of course, to Marianne um, for making this all possible and, uh, and keeping, keeping Mark's legacy alive this way. Um, and, and also to the committee uh, for um, you know, uh, giving me the honor of, of uh, presenting this lecture uh, today. Um, and for me, it was, um, I, I have a vague uh, connection you know, in, in, in my own um, research to Mark. It was one of the papers I, my advisor made me read when I just started out uh, as a thesis student was, was by Mark. And I hadn't actually quite realized that until I sort of looked it up now and, and I managed somehow uh, through the magic of old uh, files to, to, to recover that information. So that was, that was kind of interesting. And, um, and it, it's not a coincidence because even you know, when I did my thesis in the 90s, his work was still um, very much read and very important. Um, and uh, and as, it, as it actually is today in new, new guises, uh, but also, it, it was an opportunity now to, to read up on him and to, uh, to get a sense of what kind of person it was. And, and it, is, it is really inspiring and, and sort of intimidating almost what, what he managed to achieve at, at age 36. You know, I'm, I'm 40 and I feel very old, you know, looking at all his accomplishments, you know, at, at, a, at a younger age. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I, I'm very grateful for this opportunity and uh, to be here. Um, so uh, the topic of, of the, the, the talk is uh, the rise of galaxies, and um, it, it focuses on, on the most massive galaxies uh, in the universe. But since the rise of massive galaxies didn't, didn't sound quite as good, I, I figured the rise of galaxies uh, will do. But, but there is this particular focus. So those of you who are more interested in, in little galaxies or uh, galaxies like our own Milky Way, which are kind of dinky uh, in comparison to the things I'll be talking about, I, I apologize. Uh, they'll get uh, short thrift in this in this lecture. Um, so just a um, uh, you know a little little introduction to the topic. Of course, um, uh, the, the sun, you know, our, our own star, is, is nothing special. And so, in in many ways, astronomy is is the science of making us feel insignificant. Um, every few hundred years, we have another shock to our ego, and. Um, uh, you know, one of, the, one of those shocks was finding out that the sun is just a little star in a spiral arm of a, of a large galaxy that, that doesn't really care one way or the other whether we, whether we exist, probably. Um, and so, um, so this is where we live, but even um, the Milky Way itself, which is kind of a majestic system and, and fairly impressive, is, is really not all that impressive when you put it in the context of the rest of the universe. It's just one galaxy uh, out of many billions uh, in the universe. And this is a, a, a picture of the, the night sky taken with the Hubble Space Telescope. And um, these things are stars in our own galaxy. Okay. Uh, everything else is, is a, a distant galaxy that uh, is much, much further away. And each of these little blobs contains you know, about 10 billion stars. Um, and including the little, tiny little things here, those are very distant galaxies. And this is a tiny, tiny part of the sky, about as large as, you know, the width of a fingernail, uh, if you put it up to the sky. Um, and this, this, uh, if Hubble looks at another piece of the sky, you'd see a very similar uh, picture. And what you can also see is that these galaxies, um, they are kind of made up, make up the fabric of the universe. Uh, as far as we know, all the stars and, and all the planets in the universe are inside these galaxies. And if you sort of went away from our, um, our own view of you know, uh, human-sized things, uh, then you'd probably think that you know, galaxies is a pretty good way to describe you know, the universe as a whole, because they really uh, trace out the, uh, the, the large-scale structure in the universe, and they contain all the matter. So understanding how they formed and evolved is, a, is an important topic. 
Um, and so uh, the question then that we, we need to answer is, how did these uh, things form? Um, how did they change over time? Uh, and also, how did we arrive at the large variety of galaxies uh, that we see today? And, um, you know, to, to the, the first thing that tells us is uh, where we came from. So this is, you know, the usual quest of trying to find out uh, where we came from, how it all began. Uh, and uh, so this has a lot in common with, uh, with uh, geography and his history, uh, biology, sort of getting the context of our lives, you know, what happened in the past. So that's an important motivation to, uh, to study galaxies. Um, but it also uh, provides us insight into um, a lot of interesting physics that we don't understand. And in particular, um, the, the dark matter, mysterious dark matter and dark energy, uh, which are two very important components in the universe, um, but we don't really understand them. And so by studying galaxies, we learn about these things. Um, and to illustrate uh, a little bit what those things are, um, this is uh, on, the, on the right here, uh, is, a, uh, is a galaxy uh, here. Uh, and uh, this schematically uh, illustrates what is going on. This galaxy is actually uh, the light that you see here from the stars is actually a tiny part of the total mass of this galaxy. 90% um, of the mass is in stuff that you can't see, is in the form of this dark matter, uh, this mysterious um, uh, stuff uh, that behaves like normal matter in the sense that it attracts um, uh, other things and it, and it uh, uh, exerts an attraction on itself, so it behaves like matter, it exerts gravity, uh, but we can't see it, uh, we don't know what it is. Um, and in some sense, the, the normal matter is just the tip of the iceberg, it's just a little frosting um, on, uh, you know, the, the, the cake, and the cake in this case is made of dark matter. It's a little bit of a mixed metaphor there, but anyway. Um, now, uh, the dark matter is sort of the, the easy part. Uh, in these days. That's sort of the thing that we've known about since the 1970s and 80s. Um, the newer thing uh, is uh, dark energy, which is even more mysterious uh, because we, uh, it has in common with dark matter that we also don't know what it is. Uh, so that's, that's, that's good in a way. Um, but uh, the difference is that it behaves in an opposite sense. It pushes things apart. And so um, as the universe expands, uh, the, the expectation was, and this is actually something Mark uh, worked on a lot as well, um, the expectation was that uh, as it expands, because of the interaction between galaxies and the, and the uh, gravitational force that matter exerts on, on, on itself, that it would slowly then recollapse, that it would come together again under the influence of gravity and maybe end up in a big crunch at the end of time. This was a you know, big fear, well, fear, uh, expectation of people that, that the whole universe would end in a, in a, in a big crunch. Uh, but when people actually started to measure this, um, and got good measurements at, in, at the end of the 1990s, it turned out that the opposite is happening. The universe is actually speeding up. So the expansion of the universe is accelerating, uh, and that is attributed to this, to this dark energy. And um, that, that work was uh, um, uh, honored with the Nobel Prize last year. And uh, again, in this context, you know, I can't help thinking of, of Mark. It's, that's quite a leap, but this was his topic you know, in the 1980s. Um, but anyway, um, the, uh, the, the Nobel Prize was awarded for, for the discovery that, that this is happening. So that gives it some legitimacy, uh, I guess. But most astronomers were already uh, convinced long ago that this is happening. Um, and so we, we arrived then at this, this cosmic pie uh, chart uh, that describes our universe. 74% uh, of it is dark energy, of the mass energy density in the universe. So uh, that's the biggest part of the pie. 22% dark matter, and only 4% is, is atoms, uh, normal matter that we understand. 
And so um, you can see this in, as either a, a great uh, triumph of, of cosmology and human thought that we now know what the universal pi uh, is made of, you know, with these very exact numbers. You can also see it as a great embarrassment, you know, that only 4% of the universe is actually stuff we, we understand and we know what it is. Uh, what it mostly is is, of course, a great challenge. Uh, it means that there's a lot to discover. This field is still young, uh, and there's a lot of uh, excitement ahead in, in, in finding out what, what these things are, uh, the dark matter and the dark energy. And so uh, this led to this, this model called a lambda CDM. Uh, and so uh, the lambda indicates dark energy. Uh, that's the symbol for the cosmological constant that, that Einstein uh, once introduced. Um, and then CDM just stands for cold dark matter. And this is now our, um, our standard model, if you will, um, of, of cosmology, uh, that this is what the universe is made, up, made of, and this, is, uh, this tells it how to behave, essentially, how it should expand, what its ultimate fate is, uh, what its age is, etc. And uh, this, this model is very successful. Uh, it explains many observations, and uh, one in particular is um, measurements of, of the cosmic background radiation. Uh, so what that is, it's, it's radiation that was created shortly after the Big Bang, so uh, a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, which is really the, the blink of an eye in, in cosmological terms. And um, that radiation streamed through the universe for uh, billions of years, and we can still detect it now uh, on Earth with, with satellites. And um, it was, you know, first discovered uh, by Penzias and Wilson uh, in the 1960s that, that, that gave them the Nobel Prize. Since then, satellites have been launched to study it in greater and greater detail. And one of the things it, it has is all these little fluctuations, all these little, you know, bumps and wiggles here in the background. This is an image of the entire sky. And you can see that it's not completely flat, but that there's these little tiny fluctuations. And what those fluctuations are is they are the seeds of the formation of structure in the universe of galaxies and, and of uh, clusters of galaxies and of all the stuff that we see around us today. If this had been completely flat, if there had been no, no change whatsoever in this, in this radiation, we wouldn't exist. Okay? Because you need those little uh, fluctuations, those little imprints, uh, to grow the large structures that we see today. And so the existence of those things had been predicted. And what this, this wiggly curve shows, uh, the details don't matter very much. The point is that the, the data points here, the black things, are measured from, from this image here in the background, uh, mostly up till here. This comes from other measurements. Uh, and then the line is this lambda CDM uh, model that, that people have come up with. And so it's a, it's a beautiful um, you know, fit. It, it, it works really well uh, to, to great detail. And so these things are really um, uh, amazing how, you know, how well this, this model that for 96% is something we don't understand uh, is able to explain these, these, very, dis these, these very disparate observations. Um, now, okay, so what we have then, if, if we go back to our, our problem of the day, which is how did galaxies form, um, the, the problem we have, or the, the, the situation we're faced with, is that we have one picture right after the Big Bang, a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, of this microwave background radiation with those tiny fluctuations that were one part in a million, roughly. So tiny little differences in, 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 the, in sort of the, the cosmic soup back at that time. Uh, and then today we have these galaxies, like, like the Milky Way and, and bigger galaxies. Um, and what we need to understand is how did this turn into that? Right? That's, that's kind of our, our, our challenge. And it's an odd problem to have, where you have sort of the two bookends of, of evolution. And you know how things started, and you know how things ended up, and now you need to know what, what happened in between. Um, 
And um, there's, there's, um, there's essentially two methods to, uh, to approach this problem. One is uh, that you start at the beginning, you take that uh, microwave background radiation, uh, that cosmic background radiation that is observed uh, 100,000 years after the Big Bang, and you say, okay, I know how gravity works, and I, I know physics. Uh, why don't I calculate what happens in the future and see if I end up with, you know, uh, humans, for instance, at the very end. If you're less ambitious, you're happy if you create a galaxy. Um, and uh, so you, you make computer models, essentially, to, to project forward in time uh, from these initial conditions. Uh, the other method is that you um, start at the very end, and then uh, you, go, you go back in time, and we'll talk about that, and do observations of what actually happened in the universe. And the hope is, of course, that those two things uh, ultimately uh, match up. And uh, just to illustrate, you know, again, what we think happened, um, so this is not an uh, actual computer simulation, uh, you know, when we look at the forward approach, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's more of an, 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 an illustration that gives an idea. So here we zoom in on one of those little fluctuations, and then uh, what happens is, you know, the idea is that the gas contracts under the influence of gravity, uh, then at some point the, the density becomes high enough uh, so that individual stars start to form, there's stars that are forming, then those stars uh, don't stick around for long, they explode as supernovae, uh, thereby creating carbon and other things that then uh, enrich the, the gas around them and that can later form uh, uh, planets. Um, and then uh, things sort of slowly condense out of this gas into these galaxies and then all of a sudden we're done and um, we end with this satellite uh, today. Okay, um, as the, the pinnacle of, of creation. Um, so, so this is, this is an, an artist's impression, obviously. Um, but you can also do this sort of for real. You can actually um, take, a, uh, take a computer, uh, put in these initial conditions that we, we measure from the, the background radiation, and ask, uh, you know, what will happen. And so, uh, sorry, Ed, this is a, this is a, uh, a simulation of, um, you know, a, a, a sort of a more realistic simulation. This is uh, 14 billion years in, in 30 seconds. Um, and what you can see is that this galaxy grows, and how does it grow? It mostly grows by eating other galaxies. Okay, so, so galaxies, at least in the computer simulations, are sort of cannibals. They, they like to uh, eat, you know, one another and, and grow that way. And this applies uh, particularly to the biggest galaxies in the universe. Uh, the idea is now that uh, these galaxies can only have grown so big uh, by absorbing a lot of smaller galaxies. And the galaxies start out small in the early universe and then just uh, grow and grow and grow. You can also see in the simulation uh, that things were much more active at early times than later. Right? You saw all this stuff happening very early on, and then the last bits of the simulation are a little, um, a trifle uh, boring. Um, but um, it, it is quite amazing uh, uh, what we can do these days. This was just uh, one simulation of one galaxy. Um, we're able uh, today to, do, to make entire uh, artificial universes. Uh, there's a simulation now uh, done in, in Germany that actually is uh, like 100 times bigger than the real universe, than the real visible universe. So we can make simulations now that actually encompass volumes that are larger than the observable universe by a large factor. You may ask, why do they do this? Well, it's an interesting question, but um, uh, we, we can do it, and it's, that's quite amazing. And so you can then, uh, once you have an artificial universe, you can travel in it, 
Um, and so here we're traveling in one of these uh, artificial uh, universes. Um, and uh, what we see, for instance, is that um, you can see all these structures, right? That galaxies are actually arranged in these uh, filamentary-like, soap, soap bubble-like uh, structures with big voids in the middle. Uh, and, um, and then there's these big clusters of galaxies with these giant galaxies in the middle um, here. And so this is, really, this is really neat stuff, right? Uh, what we don't know is if this has anything to do with reality, <laughs> okay? Uh, but it's, it's, it's really, really pretty. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, enough of that. Um, so anyway, so we have models, which is great, because uh, models give us predictions, okay? And then uh, we can test these predictions. So that's really, um, you know, classic science. Uh, you have a prediction, and then you can try to falsify it. Um, and so the predictions are, um, in this context, small galaxies form before the big ones. So you start out with tiny little things that form very early on um, out of these little fluctuations. And then to form big galaxies, you need to put a lot of those together. So you need to merge them. Uh, they have to collide and merge in this sort of violent process uh, to form bigger galaxies. And this has been a long-standing prediction of these models. You know, now they, we can make things that are 100 times the size of the universe, but even when these simulations were starting out, this was a common theme. And it has to do with really the nature of, of dark matter and, and this microwave background that is so smooth and have this only very small fluctuations. Um, so how do we then test it? That's then the challenge, right? We, the, the simulations sort of lay down this prediction, and then it's up to observers uh, to go out, to, to, go out to, uh, to, to test these things. Now, uh, there's some problems that a lot of uh, our colleagues and other sciences don't face. You know, we, we cannot, um, you know, slice open an, 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 a galaxy egg or something and put it in a, in a lab and, and study it, you know, like our biologist friends uh, can. Um, you know, we, we can't really walk around the galaxy, look at it from different sides. We're sort of stuck with the universe uh, we have. And uh, the other problem is with, with uh, the universe is not only can we not travel there, um, the timescales are not quite uh, matched. So the, uh, the universe appears static to us. Sure, you know, stars move a little bit, you know, planets move a lot. Uh, but if you look, like look at distant galaxies, they appear exactly the same to us as they did to, you know, Egyptians and uh, ancient ancestors. And there's just no, no visible change. And that's a problem. Because if you want to know how things change, you'd like to see that. Right? You like to see that happening. Uh, and we can't, because the, the timescales of, of humans are not well matched to the timescales of, of, of galaxies. And uh, just to illustrate, you know, um, sort of out of jealousy, I'll, I'll illustrate how easy it is in biology to, to do this and, and how hard it is for us. Um, so that's, that's a dragonfly. Uh, it was actually taken here in Tucson, that picture. Um, so, you know, fine, dragonfly. Now, um, what you can see as a biologist is you can, you can study the dragonfly, you can see it flying around, you can see it doing its stuff. Um, and, uh, but suppose now that you only had this picture, right? No, it's not changing, right? We can't see it flying because flight takes, you know, 100 million years. Uh, you know, one flap of the wings. And then you had this picture, right? Uh, this is taken underwater. Uh, it's some, you know, ghastly uh, aqua aquatic thing. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> see, I'm a, I'm a real biologist. But, um, uh, so you have, you have this picture too. And, you know, you would never equate this picture with the previous picture, right? Because there's, there's this thing and there's a beautiful flying 
probably flying, you would probably infer that that thing was flying. You would probably infer that this thing lived underwater, right? Uh, but you, you wouldn't know anything else because it's static. But then, you know, uh, timescales of dragonflies are well matched to those of humans. They're actually conveniently shorter. Um, so we can actually see them, you know, grow up and die and whatnot. Um, and, and so what we can do is we can actually study them and, and see what happens. So here's the ghastly aquatic, aquatic creature uh, that's uh, climbed up uh, that reed. And then uh, what comes out, well, it looks, still looks kind of ghastly, but uh, it, it turns into uh, a, a dragonfly. Right here, the wings are sort of uh, drying up and, and hardening, and then air is pumped in the, uh, in the abdomen. Um, this, this all takes about a night, so, you know, a, a, a fairly patient observer can, can see this all happening. The wings dry up, uh, gets to be dawn, and it flies away, right? Um, and so we can do this. We can see this, and then we know, hey, that aquatic thing is actually a larva of a dragonfly, and what it does once in a while, well, once, uh, is climb up a reed and, and turn, into a, uh, turn into a dragonfly. And we'd like to do the same thing uh, with galaxies, uh, of course, uh, but we can't. Uh, we can't wait to see what happens to an individual galaxy, but uh, we do have something that biologists uh, don't have, and that is we can travel back in time. Um, and uh, what we can see, we can see individual galaxies change. What we can see is the population of galaxies change. We can go back in time and see what galaxies were around then, compare their properties to galaxies today, and then infer how they changed over time. Um, and that's really uh, kind of fundamental and, and really great. And it's all owing to the finite speed of light um, and the fact that whenever we look out, we're actually seeing light as it was uh, sent to us uh, a little while ago. So I'm actually looking at you as you were in the past, right? I'm not seeing you now. I have no idea what you're doing now. <laughs> but uh, I, I knew what you did, you know, some femtosecond ago, um, because that's, that's the light I'm actually receiving. And only in your own brain is, is your own now. You know, anything you see is in the past. Uh, and it's just that, that with, with the things that we study, uh, that, that time scale becomes long enough to be, to be noticeable. Now the moon is about a second away, the sun is eight minutes away, uh, and uh, the galaxies that we study are, are billions of light years away, uh, so we can really study them uh, in the past. Um, and it's, it's very direct. We actually see that light that they emitted. And, and again, to, you know, I don't want to sort of be too negative about all other disciplines, but uh, this is what paleontologists do. Um, they, they use fossils, right? They, they dig in the earth and they find some, some bone and then they infer uh, you know, what, what the past uh, looked like, uh, which is all great, but what astronomers do is you know, we actually get pictures. Um, you know, if, if there was an, an, a planet ident identical to Earth uh, 65 million uh, light years away, and uh, it, it, it was being hit by a, a meteorite, etc., 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 we would actually see that happening. Okay, uh, literally, because we're looking back in time. We're not inferring the past from, you know, present-day fossils, uh, but we can actually see back, uh, back in time and see what, what the past was like. Um, and that's illustrated in this picture, uh, where, again, we have, a, uh, in this case, a telescope, but, again, a satellite uh, at, the, the, um, at the current epoch, looking back. Uh, and so um, you see all these um, uh, cosmic epochs going back. So uh, the idea is that galaxies near to us, at small distances, should kind of look like galaxies, you know, today, uh, you should all kind of look like fully formed uh, big galaxies. But then as you go back in time, you should see earlier and earlier epochs. You don't see the same galaxies 
okay, this galaxy is a different galaxy from that galaxy. Uh, but if you then take an average of all these galaxies and you look at the population of galaxies, you see it changing. So that's why astronomers like to look at a lot of galaxies, not just one or two, uh, so they can then take an average of all the galaxies and say, okay, they were all a little smaller or a little bigger or whatever uh, in the past, and then compare them to the present and say, okay, that's, that's apparently what happened. Um, now, the problem is, um, and this is where astronomers ask for money, um, that these distant galaxies are very faint. Uh, because they're so distant, uh, the light that they're emitting uh, has been diluted a lot, has been spread out uh, over a large swath of the universe, and what we get on Earth is only a tiny bit of it. And so uh, the distant, these distant galaxies are so faint that we need very large telescopes to detect their light, uh, like the Keck telescopes in Hawaii and uh, the Hubble Space Telescope and, and uh, things like that. Um, and uh, this is one reason why um, you know, having a larger telescope, it doesn't just give you more information, more galaxies or more detail or anything like that. It gives you a qualitatively new information because you're looking further back in time. So this is often the reason uh, you know, why astronomers want, want to build these things. It's not so much to see things better or to, in, with more clarity. Uh, it's really to look at earlier epochs and to really probe the, the origins of, of, of galaxies and stars. Now, um, if we then turn to uh, some recent results in this context, so this is an ongoing uh, large effort, of course, to understand galaxy evolution. Uh, but we've learned a few things in, this, in the context of, large, uh, of, of these massive galaxies. And uh, one is if we look hard enough at nearby galaxies, we do, sh we do see evidence of a, of a more violent past. So essentially, all uh, nearby galaxies that we look at in enough detail um, they, they look actually kind of strange. So this is a dramatic example. Here's another uh, example. This is another galaxy. Um, and they look, they look disturbed, right? So you see all this stuff uh, around these galaxies uh, that, you know, even sort of to the, to the untrained eye, uh, looks like it sort of shouldn't be there uh, and maybe won't be there for long. And both observations are right. Uh, it shouldn't be there unless something uh, fell into this galaxy and disturbed it. Actually, these are sort of uh, shock waves of, um, in, in the potential of this galaxy caused by the accretion of, of, of a little galaxy. Um, and we can model these collisions somewhat, uh, but we're sort of left with, with an idea of, of things that happened in the past to these objects uh, without actually seeing what happened, of course, in this case. These are nearby galaxies, and so most of what happened to them uh, happened in the past. Uh, but we do see that. So we, there's these tantalizing hints in the local universe, and it's only now being really um, catalogued in detail, uh, also in, a, in the local group. Uh, so that's our own neighborhood. Here's the, um, the famous galaxy uh, Andromeda, uh, M31. Um, this is a few times the size of the full moon here, so this is already a big part of the sky. But what uh, in the last few years people have done, it's really astonishing, they've been able to measure the surroundings of the Andromeda galaxy you know, over a huge part of the sky. This is like, you know, 30 degrees on the sky. This is, this is an enormous swath of sky, which you're looking at here. Uh, and this galaxy just doesn't know how to stop, right? It keeps on going and going and going, and it's, it's very irregular in, in these, these outer parts. And these are false colors. This is not actually what it looks like, but it, it shows the density of stars uh, around Andromeda. Uh, and uh, again, indicating that, that something happened to this galaxy it didn't just sit there for 14 billion years, uh, but it has on, undergone uh, some, some uh, violent events that left all this uh, debris out there. So that's a major development. Um, uh, another development is that now, owing to the Hubble Space Telescope, we're able to measure the sizes of galaxies in, in the distant universe. 
the rather fundamental measurement, how large are galaxies and how, how large are they today and how large were they in the past. And uh, what we have found is that uh, the further you go back in time, the smaller the galaxies become until they're really, you know, tiny little things uh, at the earliest epochs. This is, again, a, a problem for astronomers because uh, it means that uh, they're very small. It means they're even fainter, even feebler uh, than the Milky Way would be if it were at that distance. So the galaxies become smaller, they're further away. You know, again, large telescopes are needed. And, uh, but the Hubble Space Telescope, especially with um, uh, its, its uh, most recent cameras, uh, has been able to detect the light of, of um, very distant galaxies and uh, we've been able to measure their sizes. So this is state-of-the-art data from the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, it's something you don't often see. You typically see more, you know, these types of galaxies, right, in Hubble pictures. Uh, but these are some of the earliest galaxies we've been able to detect. And all we see is a tiny little blob in, in one filter here, in one image uh, taken with Hubble. And in, the, in, the, in that blob is, is just, you know, it's, even with the Hubble Space Telescope, it just looks like a tiny little thing uh, that took many, many hundreds of orbits, you know, remember Ed with his orbits, uh, to, uh, to detect. Um, and uh, this is in the deepest image ever taken of the sky, and, uh, and, and even then it's very difficult. Um, so they're small and, and very low mass um, at these early um, epochs. So that's good, and then we see a gradual uh, growing of these galaxies uh, as time uh, went on. And another measurement that uh, uh, people have made is that um, the, the galaxies um, increase their mass. Um, so the, the, you can measure their mass today with some difficulty. As you go back in time, you can also try to measure their mass, you know, how, how, how much they weigh. Um, and, uh, and what we found is that in the past 10 billion years or so, so about three quarters of the history of the universe, if you go back to a time when the universe was only three billion years old, um, they, uh, they were about a factor three smaller. And uh, that's illustrated here. So this shows the mass that was in place in the past of a galaxy. So how much of its stars it already had uh, assembled uh, as a function of time. And so what we see is if we go back to a time when the universe was only a few billion years old, uh, only about 30% of these galaxies uh, was already in place. And so uh, this is a very recent measurement. Um, but it shows that these galaxies actually have built up. They have grown. They've grown in size and they've grown in mass um, over time. And so if you put these things uh, together, um, the, uh, the, the, the conclusion is that uh, this, the, this growth in the mass and co combined with this tidal debris and these, um, uh, the, this debris from collisions um, and the fact that galaxies were so much smaller in the past, um, the conclusion is that uh, big galaxies likely grew uh, by eating small galaxies. So um, the, the idea that small galaxies formed before big ones, this bottom-up formation, and that large galaxies were built up through collisions and mergers of smaller ones, mostly now I think we can say that this actually happened. Um, we're sort of at the phase, you know, if you go back to the uh, accelerating universe, this would be like right after that discovery where a lot of the community was still, still skeptical. Um, so, you know, this is not sort of uh, fully established fact. Uh, but this is certainly what, what all the evidence points to. And that would be a, a major thing because it would confirm uh, some of, you know, this, this central idea that, uh, of these uh, lambda CDM, of these cold dark matter models, uh, that galaxies actually grew in that, in that fashion. 
Now, there's some complications, and uh, one of the complications is that if you look at the masses of these galaxies, so how many stars they have, and at their sizes in the early universe, which we can now do with, with uh, Hubble uh, and big telescopes on the ground, is we find something odd. Uh, these distant galaxies were way too small, um, you know, uh, according to, uh, to the models. So they, they are way smaller than they, uh, than they should be. And so let's illustrate it. Uh, here, this is a picture... Uh, again, one of the deepest observations ever made of the universe. Um, and uh, what we see is we see galaxies at diff different cosmic epochs. We see galaxies close to us, right, these big things. And we see galaxies very far away, all in the same part of the sky. They're all projected onto the same part of the sky. And so the arrows here show some of the, the galaxies relatively nearby, so a few billion years ago. And a few billion years ago, things looked pretty much, you know, like they look today. You see, you know, these, these big balls of stars, these elliptical galaxies. You see galaxies like the Milky Way, this, this blue thing here, right? Uh, and they pretty much look like uh, uh, nearby galaxies uh, in the local universe. But then, um, when we go a bit further back in time, you find these, these red dots. Um, and what they are, they're extremely compact, massive galaxies that, that had a huge amount of stars uh, in a very small volume. Uh, you know, 8 to 10 billion years ago. They were completely unexpected uh, by any model, and uh, the community was very skeptical when, when they were first found. Uh, but uh, now, you know, after, you know, some five years of, of dedicated observations and discussions and, and you know, uh, beating people over the head with it, now uh, I, I think most people are convinced that these things actually uh, exist. Um, and, uh, you know, just to illustrate um, what, what is happening here, you have the Milky Way, for instance, right, uh, here in the local universe, which, again, is, is relatively a low-mass galaxy. And then you have a galaxy in the early universe, which is actually often more, more massive, has more stars than, than the Milky Way has, um, and it's just tiny. It packs all its stars in a really small um, volume. And, and we have no idea why or, or how that happened. Uh, and, you know, artist impression, uh, this is what the sky would look like if you lived there. Um, you know, it, it's, it would be kind of a sad place. Uh, so the, the artist chose to put us on, on the moon or something uh, out there in that galaxy. But, but in any case, the point here is not the, the, the ground. Uh, it's that the, the sky would just be filled with, with stars. You know, it would, would be, look very different uh, from uh, living on Earth. Uh, the density of stars in these systems is, is 100 to 1,000 times higher than, than in nearby galaxies. Um, and so uh, it's really bizarre. Uh, so one, one uh, criticism that people had is, well, uh, you know, if, if that's the case, if these galaxies uh, both have a lot of stars and they're really small, then the implication, if you use uh, this uh, variable equation, is that the velocity of these stars must be huge. It's basically, you know, if a, if a dancer pulls in their arms, uh, they spin faster. Uh, same thing here. If a galaxy gets a lot smaller, the stars move a lot faster. Uh, and so you expect that for a galaxy that has both a lot of mass and uh, a, a small size uh, that you have these, these crazy velocities. And so uh, with a lot of effort, uh, we managed to, to actually measure those velocities. Uh, and uh, for, for one galaxy, it took 30 hours of integration on one of the world's largest uh, telescopes to look at a single object to measure the velocities of stars in that object. And we found that, uh, sure enough, they move at uh, about a million miles uh, per hour. 500 kilometers per second, which is faster than has, had ever been measured in any other galaxy. And so that, that uh, neatly confirmed this, this idea that these galaxies are truly bizarre and have properties that we just don't see in the, in the nearby universe. Um, 
And so it was sort of a, a, a puzzle uh, that, the, the, that these galaxies are, are so compact in the past. Now, a way out uh, of this uh, conundrum is, you know, one, way, one thing you can do is, is ditch this entire model, say, well, apparently the cold dark matter model works sort of globally, but in detail it doesn't work. Uh, the dark matter, maybe on the scale of galaxies, behaves very differently than it, uh, than it does on the scale of the entire universe, where it's been well tested. Um, but um, you, you also have to uh, realize when you do these measurements that there are other ways out than, than you know, ditching uh, the idea of dark matter. And, um, and that's to realize that this model predicts the behavior of the dark matter, but we obviously don't see the dark matter. What we see is stars. Okay, uh, is the tip of, of the iceberg. The rest uh, is, is invisible to us. Uh, the dark matter, we can only infer what, what happens, but we don't actually see it. And so to predict uh, the properties of, of the stars, you actually have to have a simulation that doesn't only simulate the dark matter, but also simulates the behavior of stars. Now, where do the stars come from? Uh, stars are formed out of gas, uh, hydrogen gas uh, comes together, as, as you saw in the early movie, uh, and then out of very dense cores in the hydrogen gas, uh, you can form new stars. And so, uh, you, you, if you make one of these simulations, uh, you, you, you can't just uh, simulate the stars, you also have to simulate the properties of gas. Now, it's very difficult, only been possible the last few years with big computers, uh, but it's possible now. And so uh, what you can do is, um, is, is detailed simulations where you sort of follow the interaction of the dark matter, the gas, and then the stars that form out of that gas. Um, and uh, one popular idea is that, um, if, you, uh, that if you take two very gas-rich big galaxies, you smash them together, maybe then all the gas goes into the center of these, of these two galaxies. You form a new galaxy that's really compact in the middle. Now, to be completely honest, that theory is not sort of completely accepted anymore for the formation of these things. Uh, but but it, it, is, it is the one that produces by far the best, uh, the best movie. Um, and so, uh, here's the movie. Um, so you have two, two of these giant uh, disk galaxies. This is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of kidding, but this is, this is really beautiful work uh, by this group um, here. And um, uh, the, what we see here is the gas of these disks. I should say Brent Robertson is actually here at Arizona. I hope he's not in the audience, uh, <laughs> given what I just said. But, um, but anyway, um, so here we see these two galaxies. They've already passed each other uh, and they're now f feeling each other's uh, mutual uh, gravitational attraction. So they're doing this gravitational dance uh, where they, they are now getting closer to each other. And um, here um, they will actually merge into one new galaxy. You see all this stuff being blown away? I'll talk about that in a second. But you form this little compact thing uh, in the middle. Right? So these simulations can, can sort of, you know, qualitatively produce these uh, compact objects. Um, now, the complication is to achieve all this uh, and to look anywhere near uh, normal galaxies today, uh, there's something else that was put in these simulations and uh, that was responsible for this big blowout of gas that you saw toward the end, sort of these things emanating from the middle. Um, and that is a, a giant black hole. Okay, so um, that's an extra complication. We now think um, that uh, supermassive black holes of millions to billions times uh, the mass of the sun uh, live in the centers of all galaxies. Uh, we actually know that, you know, almost for certain. Um, but uh, what we also think is that uh, the, the, feeding, the feeding and care of these black holes uh, actually has a large impact uh, on the rest of the galaxy. 
because uh, the, the accretion disks around these black holes uh, have uh, a lot of energy and they can transfer that energy perhaps uh, to the gas that surrounds them and have an impact on the formation of stars uh, at larger distances uh, from the black hole. And so in, in all the, the standard galaxy formation models these, day, these days, uh, a black hole is put in, uh, a little artificially, but it's put in uh, and uh, it interacts with the gas. And just to illustrate, again, uh, what, what one of these black holes looked like, uh, here we go into uh, a galaxy. This is the, the bulge of the galaxy, the central part. All these, galaxy, all these black holes live in the very center of galaxies, uh, of every galaxy as far as we can tell. And then here it is. Uh, in the middle there, and there's this accretion disk. This is material flowing into the black hole. This here is the accretion disk. And then um, there's this, this spinning thing in the middle. This is very hot here, uh, very high speeds. Uh, and, uh, and then there's this energy coming out at sort of uh, right angles uh, to the black hole uh, along the uh, magnetic field lines. Um, and so, um, there's, again, there's evidence for this, right? You might think, you know, where does this come from? Well, look at this. Uh, here's a uh, black hole uh, spewing out all this material in these, in these jets here that end in these, these big lobes. This is a combination of, of radio data, uh, x-ray data, and, and an optical image, as you can see. And you get this, this amazing picture of, of a black hole, essentially, uh, that's tiny, but it extends its influence throughout the entire galaxy. Um, now, uh, if nothing else, I've probably convinced you that galaxy formation is very messy. Uh, and, uh, and that's true. So, uh, you know, we've made a lot of recent progress uh, owing to these new t uh, telescopes and computers. And I, I think it's fair to say that uh, broadly the observations are in agreement with this dark matter and dark energy model. We do see, and, and we have to acknowledge that as observers, you know, who may have been critical of these models in the past, um, that uh, the central ideas of galaxies becoming slowly larger with time and colliding with each other, we now see that everywhere in the universe that we look, uh, particularly with, with Hubble and with large uh, telescopes on the ground. And so that's a big success of, of, uh, of these models that have predicted this. But then in detail, as soon as you actually start to look at these galaxies in a bit more detail, things don't quite work anymore. And it turns out then you need all this messy you know, physics having to do with how gas cools and, and how it forms into stars, how uh, shock waves propagate through the, through the gas that, that were created by this black hole. And we're just not there yet. You know, we're, we're working on this, uh, Brent Robertson here and, and others are, are working on this, but we simply do not yet have a complete theory for the, for the formation of galaxies. And again, I think that's a good thing. It means that the field is young, there's a lot to learn. Uh, and also, you know, this, this whole model is only about a decade old. Um, and uh, particularly this model with the cosmological constant. And uh, you should sort of give it some time, maybe, to, to develop in a more uh, fully-fledged uh, theory. You know, the, the theory of evolution in biology is now 150 years old. Uh, plate tectonics, random other example, which sort of defines the field of geology in some ways, uh, is 100 years old, or first proposed 100 years ago. And so, um, you know, we're, we're sort of at the beginning of, of, of all, this, uh, all this stuff. And there's a lot ahead. Um, and uh, if you think, you know, what are the big questions at the moment? Well, the most fundamental ones must be, you know, what is the dark matter and what is the dark energy? Uh, until we know that, uh, it's, it's difficult to say, you know, we have a complete theory of, of anything, right? Uh, that remains the, the big uh, unsolved issue. There's some hope for detecting, say, a dark matter particle. So maybe within the next decade, 
uh, we might find a little, little uh, elementary particle that, that turns out to be the dark matter. With dark energy, it's a little bit more difficult to see where progress will come from. We'll measure its effects better and better on the universe, but whether that will actually tell us what it is exactly uh, is at this moment unclear. I think the other questions here, um, how did the first galaxies form and what is the role of black holes, that's an area where large telescopes, uh, new telescopes like the James Webb Space Telescope and large telescopes on the ground can really bring us a, a lot further. And so that's, that's really exciting in the coming years uh, that I think we can answer those questions. And uh, in that context, um, you know, the large, if you look at large telescopes, um, at the moment, the largest telescopes in the world have, an, have a diameter of about 8 to 10 meters, so that's the diameter of the mirror that reflects the light. But the next generation of telescopes is, is a lot bigger, uh, 25 to even 40 meters, and there's three uh, currently in, in advanced planning stages, you know, almost ready to, to actually be built. Uh, this uh, TMT 30-meter telescope and the giant Magellan telescope in the United States, and then this, this uh, extremely large telescope in Europe, that's uh, the successor of the very large telescope, uh, Europeans, you know, names. Um, but, uh, but anyway, um, that's okay. And uh, I want to end with, with a movie of uh, a telescope that, that Arizona is involved in, and in particular the, the giant Magellan telescope, and it sort of illustrates uh, what it will look like. I mean, it won't actually look quite like this, uh, of course, but it, it's, it's, it's very cute the way they did it. Here's a truck, right? Oh, it's gone. But uh, each, of these, uh, each of these mirrors is eight meters across. Okay, so this is an enormous project. And here in the mirror lab, I actually looked at this uh, two days ago uh, with, with, uh, with Buell Genuzzi. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, you can see these things, right? You can see the, uh, the, the enormous uh, size of these individual things. And just imagining, you know, all of them together in a single telescope is, is quite astonishing. Um, and uh, so here, uh, it's sort of put together. I think in reality, it'll take a little longer to build it. Um, and here it's kind of cloudy. Hopefully, it won't be that cloudy when it actually <laughs> starts observing. Here, it's uh, shooting at things, um, <laughs> and well, okay, it's it's using a laser to to correct for the blurring effects of the atmosphere. Is what I meant to say. And um, here we're finishing the construction again. And. Uh, So they should have put a little man on here or something, because then you get a better sense of the scale. But anyway, it's, it's really a marvelous uh, project. Okay, so I'll um, put the conclusions up again and, and thank you for your attention. Okay, before I take questions from the audience, first thing I'm going to say is, Squint your eyes, here come the lights. Eek. And the second thing is, if that last little movie excited you, um, there are mirror lab tours. And if you look at our main webpage, www.asforastronomy.arizona, all spelled out, .edu, you can click on the link for the various tours of mountains and the mirror lab. Okay, students. At the end of the question and answer session, Dr. Fleming will be in the back to verify that you were here. And there are allegedly treats in the lobby. And 
The telescope is open until 10 o'clock. If you go into the dome out there, you'll be on the ground floor, and you have to go up and 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 up until you get to the top of the universe. And now I'll take questions. And please, since we're recording this, I have to run around with the microphone. Um, based upon, and I know this is probably impossible to answer, but it seems that dark energy and gravity, gravity are opposing forces. And like you see, you see gravity bringing galaxies together, crashing them together. And now you, you're mentioning how galaxies are flying apart probably due to dark energy. So is dark energy kind of an anti-gravity? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, in some sense it is. Um, it, it is a, it's thought to be a property of the vacuum, the dark energy, which doesn't help really in any way, but it, it sort of sounds interesting. Um, and, um, but, but it's true that the, the interplay between gravity and uh, dark energy um, will determine what happens to galaxies that are given distance apart. One example is actually um, our own local neighborhood, so us and Andromeda. Um, you know, if you look at uh, you know, Andromeda Galaxy and ourselves, we're so close to each other and already sort of enveloped in each other's uh, dark matter that there's no escape. You know, we'll crash into each other in, in about three billion years. It, it will happen. Nothing you can do about it. Nothing whatsoever. Um, but um, if you then take a larger view, uh, and take that system as a whole, the local group, and then there's a cluster of galaxies, the Virgo cluster, which is a little further away. And what happens to that setting, you know, the Virgo cluster and the local group, depends a lot on the properties of, of dark energy, because the dark energy is trying to push us away from the Virgo cluster. Gravity is trying to pull the whole local group into the Virgo cluster. And, uh, and so that, that's, we're sort of at a critical point where either we'll be pulled in or, or pulled apart. I think people now think we're, we're actually not you know, join because of the dark energy, essentially. So on large scales, the dark energy is important. It's basically important wherever there's not a lot of mass, and so this vacuum force uh, kind of takes over. You showed the pie chart where uh, there are the, the relative percentages of what is uh, ordinary matter or baryonic matter and then dark matter and then dark energy. During the times of the earliest galaxies forming, is it true that the percentage of dark energy was less? And also, let's say you wait about 100 billion years in the future, that maybe the proportion of dark energy will maybe go from what it's presently about 70% to maybe 90% or that? Yeah, yeah, excellent question. And, and yes to both. Um, the, uh, it, it's sort of a similar to the previous question. The, the dark energy is important uh, where you don't have a lot of matter. As you go back in time, the universe was smaller, so the matter was more, more closely packed, and that made the effect of the dark energy uh, smaller. And so the, the only um, epoch where we can even detect our dark energy is sort of the last half of the history of the universe. And what people are trying to do to understand better what dark energy might be is to measure in detail the, the, the fraction, that fraction of the dark energy, how much that contributes to the pi as a function of time. Because that may tell us whether the dark energy is a constant, it's always the same and only now becomes important because it's sort of, you know, the rest of the universe is dipping down in its importance because the mass is so diluted, or whether it 
itself changes a little bit over time. And that's something that people try to measure. They, they have this parameter called W, and that, that's supposed to measure that. Uh, and uh, same goes for the future. Um, yeah, dark energy is, is here to stay and, and become more and more important. And there's even theories now of, you know, not a big crunch, but a big rip in, in space-time that, that the dark energy may become so important that the fabric of space-time may not be able to resist it uh, and, uh, and that it could just tear uh, space-time itself apart. I can't really judge the, the likelihood of that. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow, but uh, it might be something to worry about. As you're describing that, I'm wondering about the role that entropy plays in this situation, if any at all, or which way are we going? The, the role, what's... Entropy? Oh, entropy. Yeah, that's a good question. The... Um, the, uh, that's a good question too. There's something odd with um, with with entropy because in a way the universe um, becomes more ordered with time, and uh, I've you know I I, I don't have uh, nobody's really supplied a great answer to that as as far as I'm concerned. There's also an, an interesting aspect with energy conservation which is somewhat related. Uh, that is, as the universe expands, uh, the, these photons of the in the cosmic microwave background lose energy because they become stretched. And so the energy per photon goes down, uh, whereas the number of these photons is conserved, stays the same. So where does this energy go? And, uh, you know, and then there's, there's answers to that. I've asked my uh, theoretical cosmology colleagues, and they give me a beautiful explanation. And then the next day, somebody asks me a question like that, and I wish I could remember what it was. <laughs> uh, but, but it's certainly not very intuitive. Thanks. Your pie chart, chart, pie chart confuses me. You are showing their matter, that we know what it is, so it's fine. Then you show uh, dark matter, we don't know what it is, but it's also matter. And then you are showing energy on the same chart, which would be more like a force, like gravity. Gravity is not on the chart. Why is energy and matter on the same chart? Yeah, it's, it's essentially, um, you can convert um, matter to energy through MC, MS, um, you know, MC squared. He is MC squared. And uh, so it, it's convertible one into the other. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, it, it is not the same stuff, uh, but you can convert it into the same units. That's sort of the proper answer. Well, gravity is effectively uh, represented by the, both the dark matter and the, 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 the regular matter. So the, the dark energy... People don't know if it's a force or, or stuff. And uh, we, may, we don't even know if that's the right question to ask. <laughs> so that doesn't help at all, does it? <laughs> no. Oh, right here. Questions I can answer? <laughs> um, going back to what you were saying that maybe dark energy is a function of time, um, since the, isn't the lambda CDM like the the model of the proportion of distribution of the types of matter in the universe. So yeah. if, if dark energy is a function of time, could possibly the properties of the universe change over time? Well, they do. Uh, in the, uh, you know, the, the, the way everything interacts with one another uh, at the present day is different from what it was in the past. You know, if we had lived uh, 3 billion years after the Big Bang rather than 14, we wouldn't have discovered dark energy. You know, because it, it's such a small uh, effect at that point in the history of the universe uh, that there's essentially no way to detect it. 
And, uh, you know, if we lived uh, 10, 20 billion years into the future, we would have discovered it earlier probably because it would be so manifestly clear that everything is speeding up uh, that it's much easier to measure. So, yes, the, the, the universe is, is very dynamic in that sense. And what people refer to it, these pie charts and, every, uh, charts and everything, it always reflects to the situation today. And, and when you go back in time, those, those percentages change. And, and the, the way things interact with one another change. And, and precisely through measuring how things interact with one another, uh, we learn about you know, the, these percentages and, 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 and perhaps the nature of these, of these mysterious things. I believe you have an enviable amount of four-meter time uh, uh, amassed. And could you describe for us how you go through the workflow of taking observations, reducing the data, and coming to your conclusions? Uh, sure. How, how long do you have? Uh, <laughs> but, um, well, it, it, is a, it is a big task uh, these days. And it's, it's four-meter data. It's also this uh, Hubble Space Telescope program uh, that we're doing. Um, and, um, you know, it, it used to be that you just, as a grad student, you would go out to a telescope, uh, you'd gather some data, you'd go back to your home institute, uh, you know, you'd, you'd basically take out the instrumental response and all the, the defects in the data, uh, and then you would write a, a science paper based on it. Uh, but with all these big surveys and, and big problems, um, it's now often done in teams. And actually, for the first time for this Hubble Space Telescope program, um, I have somebody who's uh, in charge of the survey who's not me, uh, because she's much better at organizing a survey, making sure that, that all the elements fit together, organizing the data, organizing the people, uh, and actually telling people what to do, and making sure that the tasks are done. It's actually Eva Momcheva, who was a um, student here. Um, but, uh, and, and she's just very, very good at that, and, and that's, that's what she does for this big Hubble program. And, it's, and she's sort of in charge of 20 people. Um, so, um, it, the scale of things is very different uh, these days. And you use a lot of uh, computer programs, you know, that are, that are quite complex to analyze the data. And what's happening in astronomy is making those programs is becoming a job in itself. Uh, it's often no longer done by a grad student, but it's actually, you know, uh, people like, like here at NYO who, who write reduction pipelines, who actually spend, you know, their careers uh, helping others achieve, achieve their science goals that way. And, uh, you know, it, it, a problem is that our funding situation is not yet set up to really deal with that. It's still based on the old, you know, advisor plus student model, whereas in reality there's, there's a huge value in people who actually make, it, make things happen and, and are in between the telescope and, and the science. Yeah. Question relates to the simulations. Early part of your talk, um, the question relates to the distribution of the cold dark matter, if these are Newtonian-based simulations, how do you assume that it's distributed? Like dark energy, you can usually say, is constant throughout. Yeah, uh, what, what, um, well, the, the simulation of the single galaxy I showed, that's what sort of everything fell in. Um, what you do there is you, you essentially take a little piece of the universe, uh, and then um, where the, the, the conditions are set by the large-scale environment, and you re-simulate that little piece of the universe at much higher resolution. So in, in these computers, the, the, the problem is always that you want and very large volume of the universe, and you want to resolve very small scales. Now, ideally, you'd see every individual star form in a galaxy, and we can't do that yet. And so what we have is a whole set of nested simulations and, and simulators, you know, groups uh, who focus on different scales, and then we try to sort of patch things together. Uh, so when you take one of these little scales, um, you know, all you have to, to, to do is put in the expansion of the universe 
and um, you know, and, and Newtonian physics, and, and, and you're essentially okay. Uh, if you really did the entire universe from the beginning, that would be vastly harder uh, to do. And so uh, that's that's essentially how it works. Oh. Yeah, so that's given by, uh, yeah, thanks, sorry. Uh, that's given by this microwave background. That tells you what kind of fluctuations there were uh, at that early time. And then you put in the dark matter to actually match those, those little fluctuations. So we, we, that's the nice part. We, we don't have to fiddle with that anymore. Uh, in, in the past, that was also a free parameter. You know, in the 1980s and 90s, uh, even, we didn't quite know how big those fluctuations were. And so people could just change that to match or, or the, the, the observations of nearby galaxies. Uh, now we can't do that anymore. You know, that, that's, that's, that's a given. And so that's good. At that point, you haven't differentiated, say, matter and dark matter. So that's matter. Yeah, well, the detailed distribution of those, those peaks and valleys in that plot actually give you a very good handle on the amount of, of baryonic matter in the universe. Um, you know, don't ask me exactly how. Uh, it has to do with how, how things slosh around in the universe, which creates, uh, you know, peaks in, in, the, in, that, in that particular plot. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, so we, we have constraints on that from the detailed distribution there. Okay, we'll take one or two more questions and then we'll break for cookies. How and when was the first black hole formed and do galaxies uh, are they in relation to the size of the black holes in their centers? Yeah, um, we, we, we think we, we uh, well, the last question is easier because that we can actually see. Uh, and, and yes, the, the, the size of the black holes is actually uh, tightly coupled to, to, the, um, uh, to the size of, of the galaxy in which they live. You know, as you expect, the bigger the galaxy, uh, the bigger the black hole. Um, and uh, it seems to be connected not so much to the, to the disk of a galaxy, so not, not the, you know, the, the flat part that rotates uh, in, in which we live, the spiral arms and things, uh, but this bulge in the middle. So if you have a big bulge, a big, big sort of round distribution of stars in the middle, you get a black, big black hole. If you have a small one, you get a small black hole. Why that is exactly, we don't, we don't quite know. It may have to do with smashing together many uh, small galaxies, and then you also smash together their black holes, and so they kind of grow as the galaxy grows. Now, how do you form the first black hole then? How do you start this, this process? And one idea is that um, the first black holes or the black hole seeds were actually formed uh, when the very first stars formed. Uh, we think that the first stars in the universe were very, very massive, you know, hundreds of times more massive than, than our sun. Uh, and because they were very massive, they had very short lifetimes. You know, big stars are essentially uh, very, very efficient in burning through their fuel. You know, they have very, uh, very poor uh, gas mileage. And so uh, they, they burn through their fuel really fast, and then they explode as a supernova uh, core remains behind, implodes into a black hole. And you may form black holes of like 100 solar masses that way, 100 times the mass of the sun. Now, how you go from this little seed at early times to, you know, a million solar mass black hole later, nobody knows. Um, but the, the idea is maybe that seed is laid, you know, uh, at very, very early times that we may be able to see a glimpse of with uh, JWS uh, Space Telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, um, that, that might see some of these supernova explosions in the very early universe of the first stars. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we don't know. Okay. They weren't expected, these black holes, in, in galaxies. It was a complete surprise. Okay, here's the last and most brilliant question. 
So the pressure is on. Um, I just have one question and one comment uh, afterwards. Now, I'm familiar with the current state of the uh, cosmic pie. However, I'm curious as to how, if you can just quickly elaborate, how it will change over time. I'm assuming the 4% of atoms may relatively stay the same, but with the uh, nearly three quarters of dark energy and just under a quarter of uh, dark matter, how will that change um, over time? Yeah, so the, the, the thing that will grow is, as a fraction is this dark energy. And so the, 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 the ratio of the, of the dark matter and, and the, the atoms will re remain the same, essentially, so 10 times more dark matter, roughly, than, than, um, than, than normal matter. Uh, but then um, the, the, most of that pie will get eaten and eaten by, uh, you know, by, by the dark energy, until at some point it's 99% and 99.9%, and then you know, we, we are a vanishing part of the pie. So it become even more insignificant. <laughs> I, well, if you will, yes. Um, and my comment is, um, I think I may speak for all of us when I say this, but I appreciate the, uh, the humor you incorporated in your lecture. I feel like more lectures could maybe take note. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thank you all for coming, and let's 